love conquers selfishness. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Why? Because nothing but love can expel and conquer our selfishness. Self is the great curse, whether in its relation to God or to our fellow men in general, or to fellow Christians, thinking of ourselves and seeking our own. Self is our greatest curse. But, praise God, Christ came to redeem us from self. We sometimes talk about deliverance from the self-life, and thank God for every word that can be said about it to help us. But I am afraid some people think deliverance from the self-life means that now they are no longer going to have any trouble in serving God. They forget that deliverance from self-life means to be a vessel overflowing with love to everybody all the day. And there you have the reason why many people pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. They get something, but oh, so little, because they prayed for power for work and power for blessing, but they have not prayed for power for full deliverance from self. That means not only the righteous self in fellowship with God, but the unloving self in fellowship with men. And there is deliverance. The fruit of the Spirit is love. I bring you the glorious promise of Christ that He is able to fill our hearts with love. A great many of us try hard at times to love. We try to force ourselves to love. And I do not say that is wrong. It is better than nothing. But the end of it is always very sad. I fail continually. Many must confess. And what is the reason? The reason is simply this. They have never learned to believe and accept the truth that the Holy Spirit can pour God's love into their heart. That blessed text has often been limited. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Romans 5, 5. It has often been understood in this sense. It means the love of God to me. Oh, what a limitation. That is only the beginning. The love of God is always the love of God in its entirety, in its fullness as an indwelling power. It is a love of God to me that leaps back to Him in love and overflows to my fellow man in love. God's love to me and my love to God and my love to my fellow men. The three are one. You cannot separate them. Do believe that the love of God can be shed abroad in your heart and mind so that we can love all the day. Ah, oh, you say, how little I have understood that. Why is a lamb always gentle? Because that is its nature. Does it cost the lamb any trouble to be gentle? No. Why not? It is so beautiful and gentle. Has a lamb to study to be gentle? No. Why does that come so easy? It is his nature. And a wolf. Why does it cost a wolf no trouble to be cruel and to put its fangs into the poor lamb or sheep? Because that is its nature. It does not have to summon up its courage. The wolf nature is there. And how can I learn to love? 
I cannot learn to love until the Spirit of God fills my heart with God's love and I begin to long for God's love in a very different sense from which I have sought it so selfishly as a comfort, a joy, a happiness, and a pleasure to myself. I will not learn it until I realize that God is love and to claim and receive it as an indwelling power for self-sacrifice. I will not love until I begin to see that my glory, my blessedness, is to be like God and like Christ in giving up everything in myself for my fellow men. May God teach us this. Oh, the divine blessedness of the love with which the Holy Spirit can fill our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is God's gift. Once again I ask, why must this be so? And my answer is, without this we cannot live the daily life of love. How often when we speak about the consecrated life, we have to speak about a temper, and people have sometimes said, You make too much of temper. I do not think we can make too much of it. Think for a moment of a clock and of what its hands mean. The hands tell me what is within the clock, and if I see that the hands stand still, or that the hands point wrong, or that the clock is slow or fast, I say that something inside the clock is not working properly. And temper is just like the revelation that the clock gives of what is within. Temper is a proof whether the love of Christ is filling the heart or not. How many there are who find it easier in church or in prayer meeting or in work for the Lord, diligent, earnest work to be holy and happy than in the daily life with wife and children. How many find it easier to be holy and happy outside the home than in it? Where is the love of God? In Christ. God has prepared for us a wonderful redemption in Christ, and he longs to make something supernatural of us. Have we learned to long for it, ask for it, and expect it in its fullness? Then there is the tongue. We sometimes speak of the tongue when we talk of the better life and the restful life, but just think what liberty many Christians give to their tongues. They say, I have a right to think what I like. When they speak about each other, when they speak about their neighbors, when they speak about other Christians, how often there are sharp remarks. God keep me from saying anything that would be unloving. God shut my mouth if I am not to speak in tender love. But what I am saying is a fact. How often sharp criticism, sharp judgment, hasty opinion, unloving words, secret contempt of each other, secret condemnation of each other are found among Christians who are banded together in work. 
Oh, just as a mother's love covers her children and delights in them and has the tenderest compassion with their foibles or failures, so there ought to be in the heart of every believer a motherly love toward every brother and sister in Christ. Have you aimed at that? Have you sought it? Have you ever pleaded for it? Jesus Christ said, As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. John thirteen thirty four. And he did not put that among the other commandments, but he said, in effect, That is a new commandment, the one commandment, Love one another as I have loved you. John thirteen thirty four. It is in our daily life and conduct that the fruit of the Spirit is love. From that comes all the graces and virtues in which love is manifested, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, no sharpness or hardness in your tone, no unkindness or selfishness, meekness before God and man. You see that all these are the gentler virtues. I have often thought, as I read those words in Colossians, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Colossians 3.12 that if we had written this, we should have put in the foreground the strong virtues, such as zeal, courage, and diligence. But we need to see how the gentler, the more tender virtues are especially connected with dependence on the Holy Spirit. These are indeed heavenly graces. They never were found in the heathen world. Christ was needed to come from heaven to teach us. Your blessedness is long-suffering, meekness, kindness. Your glory is humility before God. The fruit of the Spirit that he brought from heaven out of the heart of the crucified Christ and that he gives in our heart is first and foremost love. You know what John says. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. 1 John 4.12 That is, I cannot see God, but as a compensation, I can see my brother, and if I love him, God dwells in me. Is that really true? That I cannot see God, but I must love my brother, and God will dwell in me? Loving my brother is the way to real fellowship with God. You know what John further says in that most solemn test. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? 1 John 4.20 there is a brother, a most unlovable man. He worries you every time you meet him. He is of the very opposite disposition to yours. You are a careful businessman, and you have to associate with him in your business. He is most untidy, unbusinesslike. You say, I cannot love him. Oh, friend, 
You have not learned the lesson that Christ wanted to teach above everything. Let a man be what he will. You are to love him. Love is to be the fruit of the Spirit all the day and every day. Yes, listen. If you don't love that unlovable man whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? You can deceive yourself with beautiful thoughts about loving God. You must prove your love to God by your love to your brother. That is the one standard by which God will judge your love to him. If the love of God is in your heart, you will love your brother. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And what is the reason that God's Holy Spirit cannot come in power? Is it not possible? You remember the comparison I used in speaking of the vessel? I can dip a little water into a small vessel, but if a vessel is to be full, it must be unbroken. And the children of God, wherever they come together, to whatever church or mission or society they belong, must love each other intensely, or the Spirit of God cannot do His work. We talk about grieving the Spirit of God by worldliness and ritualism and formality and error and indifference. But I tell you, the one thing above everything that grieves God's Spirit is this lack of love. Let every heart search itself and ask that God may search it. Our love shows God's power. Why are we taught that the fruit of the Spirit is love? Because the Spirit of God has come to make our daily life an exhibition of divine power and a revelation of what God can do for His children. In the second and the fourth chapters of Acts, we read that the disciples were of one heart and of one soul. During the three years they had walked with Christ, they never had been in that spirit. All Christ's teaching could not make them of one heart and one soul. But the Holy Spirit came from heaven and shed the love of God in their hearts, and they were of one heart and one soul. The same Holy Spirit that brought the love of heaven into their hearts must fill us too. Nothing less will do. Even as Christ did, one might preach love for three years with the tongue of an angel, but that would not teach any man to love unless the power of the Holy Spirit should come upon him to bring the love of heaven into his heart. Think of the church at large. What divisions. Think of the different bodies. Take the question of holiness. Take the question of the cleansing blood. Take the question of the baptism of the Spirit. What differences are caused among dear believers by such questions? That there are differences of opinion does not trouble me. We do not have the same constitution and temperament and mind. But how often hate, bitterness, contempt, separation, and unlovingness are caused by the holiest truths of God's Word. Our doctrines, our creeds have been more important than love. We often think we are valiant for the truth, and we forget God's command to speak the truth in love. And it was so in the time of the Reformation between the Lutheran and Calvinistic churches. What 
bitterness there was in regard to communion, which was meant to be the bond of union among all believers. And so through the ages, the very dearest truths of God have become mountains that have separated us. If we want to pray in power, and if we want to expect the Holy Spirit to come down in power, and if we indeed want God to pour out His Spirit, we must enter into a covenant with God that we will love one another with a heavenly love. Are you ready for that? Only that is true love that is large enough to take in all God's children, the most unloving and unlovable and unworthy and unbearable and trying. If my vow, absolute surrender to God, was sincere, then it must mean absolute surrender to the divine love to fill me. I must be a servant of love to love every child of God around me. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Oh, God did something wonderful when He gave Christ at His right hand, the Holy Spirit, to come down out of the heart of the Father and His everlasting love, and how we have degraded the Holy Spirit into a mere power by which we have to do our work. God, forgive us. Oh, that the Holy Spirit might be held in honor as a power to fill us with the very life and nature of God and of Christ. Christian work requires love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. I ask once again, why is it so? And the answer comes, that is the only power in which Christians really can do their work. Yes, it is love that we need. We want not only love that is to bind us to each other, but we want a divine love in our work for the lost around us. Oh, do we not often undertake a great deal of work? Just as men undertake work of philanthropy from a natural spirit of compassion for our fellow men, do we not often undertake Christian work because our minister or friend calls us to it? And do we not often perform Christian work with a certain zeal but without having had a baptism of love? People often ask, What is the baptism of fire? I have answered more than once. I know no fire like the fire of God, the fire of everlasting love that consumed the sacrifice on Calvary. The baptism of love is what the church needs. And to get that, we must begin at once to get down on our faces before God in confession and plead, Lord, let love from heaven flow down into my heart. I am giving up my life to pray and live as one who has given himself up for the everlasting love to dwell in and fill him. Ah, yes, if the love of God were in our hearts, what a difference it would make. There are hundreds of believers who say, I work for Christ, and I feel I could work much harder, but I do not have the gift. I do not know how or where to begin. I do not know what I can do. 
Brother, sister, ask God to baptize you with the spirit of love, and love will find its way. Love is a fire that will burn through every difficulty. You may be a shy, hesitating person who cannot speak well, but love can burn through everything. God fills us with love. We need it for our work. You have read many a touching story of love expressed, and you have said, How beautiful! I heard one not long ago. A lady had been asked to speak at a rescue home where there were a number of poor women. As she arrived there and passed by the window with the matron, she saw a wretched woman sitting outside and asked, Who is that? The matron answered, She has been into the house thirty or forty times, and she has always gone away again. Nothing can be done with her. She is so low and hard. But the lady said, She must come in. The matron then said, We have been waiting for you, and the company is assembled, and you have only an hour for the address. The lady replied, No. This is of more importance, and she went outside where the woman was sitting and said, My sister, what is the matter? I am not your sister, was the reply. Then the lady laid her hand on her and said, Yes, I am your sister, and I love you. And so she spoke until the heart of the poor woman was touched. The conversation lasted some time, and the company was waiting patiently. Ultimately, the lady brought the woman into the room. There was the poor, wretched, degraded creature, full of shame. She would not sit on a chair, but sat down on a stool beside the speaker's seat, and she let her lean against her, with her arms around the poor woman's neck, while she spoke to the assembled people. And that love touched the woman's heart. She had found one who really loved her, and that love gave access to the love of Jesus. Praise God, there is love on earth in the hearts of God's children, but oh, that there were more. Oh God, baptize our ministers with a tender love, and our missionaries, our Bible readers, our workers, and our young men's and young women's associations. Oh, that God would begin with us now and baptize us with heavenly love. Love inspires intercession. Once again, it is only love that can fit us for the work of intercession. I have said that love must fit us for our work. Do you know what the hardest and the most important work is that has to be done for this sinful world? It is the work of intercession, the work of going to God and taking time to lay hold of Him. A man may be an earnest Christian, an earnest minister, and a man may do good, but alas, how often he has to confess that he knows little of what it is to tarry with God. May God give us the great gift of an intercessory spirit, a spirit of prayer and supplication. Let me ask you in the name of Jesus not to let a day pass without praying for all saints and for all God's people. 
I find there are Christians who think little of that. I find there are prayer unions where they pray for the members and not for all believers. I pray you, take time to pray for the Church of Christ. It is right to pray for the heathens, as I have already said. God help us to pray more for them. It is right to pray for missionaries and for evangelistic work and for the unconverted. But Paul did not tell people to pray for the heathen or the unconverted. Paul told them to pray for believers. Do make this your first prayer every day. Lord, bless thy saints everywhere. The state of Christ's church is indescribably low. Plead for God's people that he would visit them. Plead for each other. Plead for all believers who are trying to work for God. Let love fill your heart. Ask Christ to pour fresh love into you every day. Try to grasp by the Holy Spirit of God. I am separated unto the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. God help us to understand it. May God grant that we learn day by day to wait more quietly upon Him. We must not wait upon God only for ourselves, or the power to do so will soon be lost. But we must give ourselves up to the ministry and the love of intercession, and pray more for God's people in general, for God's people around us, for the spirit of love in ourselves and in them, and for the work of of God we are connected with. The answer will surely come, and our waiting upon God will be a source of untold blessing and power. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Have you a lack of love to confess before God? Then make confession and say before Him, O oh Lord, my lack of heart, my lack of love, I confess it. And then as you cast that lack at his feet, believe that the blood cleanses you, that Jesus comes in his mighty, cleansing, saving power to deliver you, and that he will give his Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Separated unto the Holy Spirit. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia. Acts 13, 1-4 In the story of our text, we find some precious thoughts to guide us to what God would have of us, and what God would do for us. The great lesson of the verses quoted is this. The Holy Spirit is the director of the work of God upon the earth, and what we should do if we are to rightly work 
for God, and if God is to bless our work, is to see that we stand in a right relationship with the Holy Spirit. We must see that we give Him the place of honor that belongs to Him every day in all our work and, what is more, in all our private inner life. The Holy Spirit must always have the first place. Let me point out to you some of the precious thoughts our passage suggests. First of all, we see that God has his own plans with regard to his kingdom. His church at Antioch had been established. God had certain plans and intentions with regard to Asia and with regard to Europe. He had conceived them, they were his, and he made them known to his servants. Our great commander organizes every campaign, and his generals and officers do not always know the great plans. They often receive sealed orders, and they have to wait for him to reveal their contents. God in heaven has wishes and a will in regard to any work that ought to be done and to the way in which it has to be done. Blessed is the man who receives God's secrets and works under him. Some years ago at Wellington, South Africa, where I live, we opened a mission institute, what is counted there a fine large building. At our opening services, the principal said something that I have never forgotten. He remarked, Last year we gathered here to lay the foundation stone, and what was there then to be seen? Nothing but rubbish and stones and bricks and ruins of an old building that had been pulled down. There we laid the foundation stone, and very few knew what the building was that was to rise. No one knew it perfectly in every detail except one man, the architect, in his mind it was all clear, and as the contractor and the mason and the carpenter came to do their work, they took their orders from him. The humblest laborer had to be obedient to orders. The structure rose, and this beautiful building has been completed. And just so, he added, this building that we open today is but laying the foundation of a work of which only God knows what is to become. But God has his workers and his plans clearly mapped out. Our position is to wait so that God may communicate to us as much of his will as is needful. We simply have to be faithful in obedience, carrying out his orders. God has a plan for his church on earth, but alas! We too often make our own plan. We think that we know what ought to be done. We ask God first to bless our feeble efforts instead of absolutely refusing to go unless God goes before us. God has planned for the work and the extension of his kingdom. The Holy Spirit has had that work given in charge to him. The work whereunto I have called them.
May God, therefore, help us all to be afraid of touching the ark of God, 2 Samuel 6, 6, except as we are led by the Holy Spirit. Then the second thought, God is willing and able to reveal to his servants what his will is. Yes, blessed be God, communications still come down from heaven. As we read here what the Holy Spirit said, so the Spirit will still speak to his church and his people. In these latter days, he has often done it. He has come to individual men, and by his divine teaching, he has led them out into fields of labor that others could not at first understand or approve. He has led them into ways and methods that did not appeal to the majority, but the Holy Spirit still, in our time, teaches his people. Thank God, in our foreign missionary societies and in our home missions and in a thousand forms of work, the guiding of the Holy Spirit is known. But we are already, I think, to confess he is too little known. We have not learned to wait upon him enough, and so we should make a solemn declaration before God. Oh God, we want to wait more for you to show us your will. Do not ask God only for power. Many a Christian has his own plan of working, but God must send the power. The man works in his own will, and God must give the grace. The one reason why God often gives so little grace and so little success. But let us all take our place before God and say, what is done in the will of God, the strength of God, will not be withheld from it. What is done in the will of God must have the mighty blessing of God. And so let our first desire be to have the will of God revealed. If you ask me, is it any easy thing to get these communications from heaven and to understand them? I can give you the answer. It is easy to those who are in proper fellowship with heaven and who understand the art of waiting on God in prayer. How often we ask, how can a person know the will of God? And people want, when they are in perplexity, to pray very earnestly so that God would answer them at once. But God can only reveal his will to a heart that is humble and tender and empty. God can only reveal his will in perplexities and special difficulties to a heart that has learned to obey and honor him loyally in little things and in daily life. That brings me to the third thought. Note the disposition to which the Spirit reveals God's will. What do we read here? 
there were a number of men ministering to the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit came and spoke to them. Some people understand this passage as they would in reference to a missionary committee of our day. We see there is an open field, and we have had our missions in other fields. We are going to get on to that field. We have virtually settled that, and we pray about it. But the position was a very different one in those former days. I doubt whether any of them thought of Europe, for later on even Paul himself tried to go back into Asia until the night vision called him by the will of God. Look at those men. God had done wonders. He had extended the church to Antioch, and he had given rich and large blessings. Now here were these men ministering to the Lord, serving Him with prayer and fasting. What a deep conviction they have. It must all come directly from heaven. We are in fellowship with the risen Lord. We must have a close union with Him, and somehow He will let us know what He wants. And there they were, empty, ignorant, helpless, glad, and joyful, but deeply humbled. O Lord, they seemed to say, we are your servants, and in fasting and prayer we wait upon you. What is your will for us? Was it not the same with Peter? He was on the housetop, fasting and praying, and little did he think of the vision and the command to go to Caesarea. He was ignorant of what his work might be. It is in hearts entirely surrendered to the Lord Jesus, separating themselves from the world and even from ordinary religious exercises and giving themselves up in intense prayer to look to their Lord that the heavenly will of God will be made manifest. You know that word fasting occurs a second time in the third verse. They fasted and prayed. When you pray, you love to go into your closet according to the command of Jesus and shut the door. You shut out business and company and pleasure and anything that can distract and you want to be alone with God. But in one way, even the material world follows you there. You must eat. These men wanted to shut themselves out from the influences of the material and the visible, and they fasted. What they ate was simply enough to supply the wants of nature. In the intensity of their souls, they thought to give expression to their letting go of everything on earth in their fasting before God. Oh, may God give us that intensity of desire, that separation from everything, because we want to wait upon God, that the Holy Spirit may reveal to us God's blessed will. The fourth thought. What is now the will of God as the Holy Spirit reveals it? It is contained in one phrase. Separation unto the Holy Spirit. That is the keynote of the message from heaven. Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. The work is mine, 
and I care for it, and I have chosen these men and called them, and I want you who represent the church of Christ upon earth to set them apart unto me. Look at this heavenly message in its twofold aspect. The men were to be set apart to the Holy Spirit, and the church was to do this separating work. The Holy Spirit could trust these men to do it in a right spirit. There they were, abiding in fellowship with the heavenly. The Holy Spirit could say to them, Do the work of separating these men. And these were the men the Holy Spirit had prepared. And he could say of them, Let them be separated unto me. Here we come to the very root, the very life of the need of Christian workers. The question is, what is needed so that the power of God would rest on us more mightily? What is needed so that the blessing of God would be poured out more abundantly among those poor, wretched people and perishing sinners among whom we labor? And the answer from heaven is, I want men separated unto the Holy Spirit. What does that imply? You know that there are two spirits on earth. Christ said when he spoke about the Holy Spirit, The world cannot receive him. John 14:17. Paul said, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is of God. 1 Corinthians 2:12. That is the great want in every worker, the spirit of the world going out, and the spirit of God coming in to take possession of the inner life and of the whole being. I am sure there are workers who often cry to God for the Holy Spirit to come upon them as a spirit of power for their work. When they feel that measure of power and receive blessing, they thank God for it. But God wants something more and something higher. God wants us to seek for the Holy Spirit as a spirit of power in our own heart and life. To conquer self and cast out sin and to work the blessed and beautiful image of Jesus into us. There is a difference between the power of the Spirit as a gift and the power of the Spirit for the grace of a holy life. A man may often have a measure of the power of the Spirit, but if there is not a large measure of the Spirit as the Spirit of grace and holiness, the defect will be evident in his work. He may be made the means of conversion, but he never will help people on to a higher standard of spiritual life. When he passes away, a great deal of his work may pass away too. But a man who is separated unto the Holy Spirit is a man who is given up to say, Father, let the Holy Spirit have full dominion over me, in my home, in my temper, in every word of my tongue, in every thought of my heart, in every feeling toward my fellow men. Let the Holy Spirit have entire possession. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.